Well, friends, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open in them to the book of 2 Timothy. Uh, the book of 2 Timothy is towards the end of your New Testaments, and, and this is really the book that we're going to be in uh, really up until Christmas. And so uh, as we jump in here, I don't want to actually assume uh, that we know exactly what a Second Timothy is. Uh, as I say that, some of you may be familiar with your Bibles and what this book is, and others might be like, yeah, what is a Second Timothy? So uh, let me just, uh, this is going to feel a little different. It's like, it's similar to many of the introductions to the series that we'll walk through where uh, this is kind of an informational sermon, at least on the front end. But uh, let me just talk to you first about genre. Right? So it's important to know what John we're reading and we're studying as we approach God's Word. And, and God in His great wisdom throughout this book gave us different ways of engaging with the story of redemption, with the unfolding story of Jesus Christ. He's given us books like law, or, uh, or genres like law, or poetry, or wisdom books. Uh, there's historical books, and there's your Gospels, which is uh, both uh, history and then looking at the teachings of Jesus, or Acts, which just looks at the unfolding of the church. There's this crazy genre of, uh, um, um, why can't I think, apocalyptic literature. So think the book of Revelation, right, which is just, it stands alone in many ways in Scripture. Uh, but we're going to be looking at a genre called an epistle, an epistle. And that's just a fancy way of saying this is a letter. Uh, we're going to be reading a letter written by the Apostle Paul to another person. So epistles can be letters written to an individual, in this case, a guy named Timothy, or in books like Ephesians, it's a letter written to a region of churches. So Ephesians is written to a group of churches in the area of Ephesus. And so um, we're going to be kind of eavesdropping on these pen pals, right, as we read this letter here uh, throughout the rest of the fall. Now, let me give you two characteristics of an epistle or a letter. It, it has two uh, essential elements to it. There's indicative statements and imperative statements, all right? An indicative statement is basically a statement of truth. Right, And so there's going to be these statements of truth or what is true, and then an imperative is a command, right? It's the what to do. And so you've heard me say this before if you've been around New Life. As we approach the Christian faith, uh, the indicative precedes the imperative, and the order is not reversible, meaning what is true about us and our place in Christ is, is what is true, and that comes before what we do. What we tend to love to do as people is we say, hey, what I do equals what is true of me. And that's actually not the Christian faith at all. And so uh, in books like Romans, it's really easy to see the indicative-imperative combination because the first 11 chapters is indicative. This is justification. This is what it means to be a sinner. This is what adoption looks like. This is who the Holy Spirit is. And then there's a word, therefore, in chapter 12 that says, therefore, in light of that, the imperative. Here's what flows out of that position in Christ. In other books, like what we're reading today, you'll see it interplaying all throughout. And so uh, I'm just naming those categories for you as we get going. Now, some of you may be going, okay, what's a second Timothy? Uh, was there a first Timothy? Right? Is this like Timothy Jr. and his first Timothy to his dad? Like what, you know, what is Second Timothy? What does it mean? Well, these are two different letters written to the same person. Timothy was a disciple of Paul's, which we'll talk about here in just a minute. And Paul really sent him out to be a pastor and a church planter. And so the book of First Timothy acts as sort of a church manual, a church planting manual in a way, saying, here's how you identify elders to help lead the church. Here's how you identify deacons to help uh, serve the church. Uh, this is how you guard the good deposit of the gospel through your belief and your theology. That's the book of First Timothy. But the book of Second Timothy takes a totally different tone. 
In fact, this is Paul's most personal writing that he has, his most personal letter where he's truly encouraging this young person in ministry to keep going, to keep fighting in his faith, to keep serving when it gets hard. And I think that's actually what makes this book one of the most compelling books in the Bible. In fact, this is my personal favorite book of the Bible, and it's really because of what's going on underneath it. Now, let me explain that a little bit more. This is Paul's final letter. He's actually in prison in Rome. Uh, One of the church fathers or church historians, Eusebius, would say um, Paul was martyred under Nero, the emperor who was a bad dude, in somewhere between 64 and 67 A.D. This is his imprisonment that you can read about if you go to Acts chapter 28. And, And essentially, Paul knows that he's going to die. As we read this book, there is no question that he knows he's going to die, which is quite different. He's written other letters from jail. If you go to the book of Philippians, he's in prison, and he's like, it's all about joy. It's the most used word in that book. And he said, I know that the Lord will deliver me, but it is very clear here, as he's writing this final letter to Timothy, he's saying, can you bring my favorite coat? Can you bring my favorite parchments? Because I know I'm going to die. Friends, this is very much a closing door moment. We've talked about this before. When we read Deuteronomy, if you are here, when we preach through that, those are Moses' last words. And, and, and I brought up the reality that, that, that when you're looking at a closing door moment of a person's life, it's profound. So think of a rom-com for a second. We've watched rom-coms before, right? Uh, I'm a big hitch guy. I love that movie. Um, but, but think about like the tension that's built over the course of rom-coms, right? There's this tension of love, right? You know they love each other. They haven't said it to each other yet, but then there's this moment at the end where one of them's getting in a car and they're like, if the person doesn't tell me they love them, I'm gone. And you're sitting there watching the movie going, just say it. The door's closing. It's really important right now for you to tell her you love her, right? We've seen those movies. In a way, this is a similar moment. Growing up in a Navy town, I saw this quite a bit when people were deployed. They, they had those closing door moments where they, this is a critical moment. I need to, I need to tell you what's on my heart. Some of us have experienced those moments like I did at 27 where uh, my dad was going in for surgery and we knew there was a good chance he was not going to survive and he did not. And that last two hours together, we did not talk about sports. We did not talk about food. We sat there and we said, is there anything left on the table? Have we shared how much we love each other? Have we forgiven each other? Because this is a closing door moment. That's what we're eavesdropping on right now. May the Lord tune our ears to hear the words of this saint. And I mean that in the terms of saint like all of us. As the most profound things bubble to the top of his heart. Let me give you some themes that we're going to lean into, and then I'll get into our text for today. Um, One of the themes that we're going to read about are the different traps that people fall into uh, when they consider Christianity. For instance, we go to church and we, we claim a form of godliness, but we reject the power of the gospel at work in us. That's a false form of Christianity. And so we're going to read about things like that. Paul's going to tell Timothy, this is what it looks like to suffer well in your faith, because that is a part of the Christian life. We're going to see moments of him encouraging Timothy to persevere in the gospel. 
We're going to see themes of him encouraging Timothy to participate in ministry and to persevere in it because ministry is hard. And you know what? Sometimes life is hard and it's easy to to say, ah, do I still believe this? Paul knows this. And that's going to be a big encouragement. And and here's the last theme, and this is what we're going to lean into today. Uh, Even though it's not as overt, you don't see the word in the text, we're really looking at a discipleship relationship and what discipleship looks like as we walk through this book. And so again, if you have your Bibles, 2 Timothy 1, verses 1 to 7, it's going to be up on the screen. Let me encourage you to follow along with me. Here's what Paul writes. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, the faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois, Lois, your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Let me pray for us. Lord, as we come to this, again, in order for any change to happen in our hearts and in our lives, we need you to move there via the power of your Spirit. And so would you do so? Lord, would you give us ears to hear and really eavesdrop in this beautiful picture of discipleship and encouragement to persevere in faith? And Lord, just a continuing view of, of, of becoming a church that looks more and more like you, Jesus. So help us today. Lord, would you guide and protect my words? Would you, um, Lord, move in my heart as well uh, as I sit in your word. So we love you and we pray these things in your name. Amen. All right, so let me first talk about how this is a picture of discipleship. And, and let me unpack that word. It's, it's one that's really easy for us to say in church and not really know what we mean. So first of all, a disciple is simply someone who follows, right? And so in the church, what that means is if we call ourselves a Christian, we are a disciple of Jesus. It means we are following after Jesus, okay? Discipleship, let me just give you a working definition, is essentially us learning to love and follow the person of Jesus Christ. It's learning to love and follow Jesus Christ. And so there's a there's kind of this verb or participle, right, if we're getting technical, but this idea of of discipling, which is something that Jesus commands us to do in the Great Commission, uh, which is where we are actively coming alongside of other people, helping them learn to love and follow Jesus. So everything from evangelism and sharing the gospel to walking alongside other brothers and sisters in the church, or even our own families and children and saying, this is what it looks like to love and follow Jesus, okay? So that's this picture of discipleship, and we have this here with these two guys, Paul and Timothy. Paul and Timothy. So Paul is this like grizzled, 30-year church-planting veteran who has had to escape cities being lowered in a basket. He's been stoned. He's been shipwrecked. He's been bit by snakes. He's been abandoned. This is a dude, man. Like It's unbelievable what he's been through. And then you have this contrast of this man, Timothy. Timothy, now I I want us to not move too quickly past what is said in verse 2. It says, to Timothy, my beloved child. 
Don't miss this relationship. Paul's never been married. He's never had his own children. And in a way, his spiritual children become that to him. They have his heart. And Timothy is one of the ones that kind of rises to the top, who travels with him. We see him first, or we see that this might have happened where Paul was part of leading him to faith in Acts chapter 14. And then we see a picture of him in Acts chapter 16 where it says, Paul came to Derbe and to Lystra, and a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek, meaning he was an unbeliever. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. And so this is kind of where we have the first picture of Timothy. But what we find as we read through First and Second Timothy in particular is, is Timothy's not exactly like Paul. Paul is willing to say whatever, whenever. Whether he's talking to an emperor or someone on the road, he will just say it plain. He will endure, endure great suffering, right? He studied under some of the greats in the Jewish tradition. But Timothy wasn't like that. The picture we have of Timothy from 1st and 2nd Timothy, these two books, one we'll see today, he has this kind of streak of timidity. He was a little timid. Also, there is this picture he was young. In 1st Timothy, he's like, hey, don't let people hate you for your youth, which means he was probably being hated on. The third thing that we see, which is fascinating, there's a health problem with Timothy. We don't know exactly what it is, but uh, in 1st Timothy 5, verse 23, Paul goes to Timothy and he says, hey, you're having some stomach problems, right? We don't know if it's because of anxiety. We don't know. Some, some people, check this out. Some people are like, hey, um, uh, we think Timothy was an introvert called to an extrovert job of church planting, and he probably had a sour stomach as a result. That is so extra biblical. I don't even know if we should believe it or if I should have even said it. But it's just funny that that was in multiple commentaries as I'm reading it. But nevertheless, Paul says, hey, your stomach's a mess. Right? He's like, theology, theology. Let's talk about your stomach for a second. And, uh, and he said, no longer drink water. Drink, drink a little wine to help settle your stomach. Now, I don't know if that's sound medical advice today, but nevertheless, Timothy just feels different than Paul. Timid, young, upset stomach, right? In many ways, Timothy encourages me. Because whether or not I project this right publicly or not, but I'm fearful. I'm fragile. I'm more fragile than you would think. And I know this is hard for many of you to believe, but I can be quite timid. I know you're like, yeah, you're a real shrinking violet gamage, but uh, you know, uh, but I am in my heart of hearts. Timothy encourages me. So here's the question to wrestle through briefly as we walk through the rest of this is, is how can we persevere in ministry and in the gospel really and encourage others too? And what can we just pull out of this passage? So the first thing I want us to wrestle through is, is, is looking at in order to be a disciple and to persevere, we need to understand that there is lasting authority and grace for us. There's lasting authority and grace for us. And this is one and two. These are usually the throwaway verses as we're reading through books of the Bible. Verse 1, we see a picture of lasting authority. Paul says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promises of life that is in Christ Jesus. There is significance there because what he's saying in part to Timothy is he's saying, hey, um, there is an authoritative word coming out of me right now. And he's calling him to listen to it. He calls himself an apostle. We talked about this a little bit last week where an apostle technically is a messenger, uh, but but more clearly, especially in the New Testament, an apostle is an official office of sorts that Jesus set in place that was unique to that time frame where he um, 
made them, by the power of the Spirit, the mouthpiece of God. We'll see a picture of this in Jesus uh, from Jesus in Luke 6. When the day came, he called his disciples, right? So this is more than just the twelve, and chose from them twelve whom he named apostles. We see Paul have a similar interaction with Jesus in Acts chapter 9, where he gives Paul that authority to go to the Gentiles, the non-Jewish world, and take the gospel. He goes on to say, my, my apostleship is of Christ Jesus. And I want you to understand, this is kind of goes back to where we were for the last three weeks. Paul was not apostle, an apostle of any uh, in particular social movement or ideology. He was an apostle or a messenger of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that alone. And so what, at least at the beginning, he's articulating to Timothy, and by virtue of Paul, we are listening in to Paul also saying, I I am bringing to you an authoritative word of God. The second thing we see is this picture of grace and mercy. Again, typically another throwaway statement, but he says, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. This is something worth slowing down on. Uh Uh-oh. But let me read to you what John Stott says, because I feel like he says it a lot better, talking about these three words and where they come from, what Paul's communicating. He says, If grace is God's kindness to the undeserving, mercy is shown to the weak and helpless who cannot help themselves. Peace is reconciliation, the uh, the restoration and harmony to lives spoiled by discord. We may summarize these three blessings of God's love as being grace to the worthless mercy to the helpless, and peace to the restless. In a way, this should kind of offend our modern thinking. It's saying we, on our own accord, there is a spiritual worthlessness. There is a spiritual helplessness. And left to our own devices, we're just going to eviscerate each other in division. But he's saying there is grace, mercy, and peace that is flowing towards everyone who places their faith in Christ from God. Here's how he ends it. While God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord together constitute one spring from which the threefold stream flows forth. He's saying the Father and Jesus are, is this the steady stream of grace and mercy and peace towards all who follow him. And so the takeaway for our discipleship is really, you know, a big part of following Jesus is recognizing that we are actually people under authority. We are not autonomous. We are not our own authority, ever. And if we are discipling another person, we are not calling them to look more like us. God help them if that's what we're doing. He's saying, come to me to God's word. That's how we walk with people in discipling and saying, what does it look like to look more like Jesus? But Here's the second thing. A recognition that we will constantly fail and that we will constantly be in need of grace and mercy and his peace. Here's the second thing we need to look at. What does it mean to persevere in our discipleship? And these aren't laws that I'm getting ready. These aren't necessarily imperatives, but I think there's principles here that we can lift out about what Paul sees about Timothy that he knows Timothy's going to need to continue to persevere in following Jesus. And it really evolves around this term, remember. As we look at this, he says the term, remember, four times between verses 3 and verse 7. Again, whenever you're reading your Bible and there's a repeated word, we need to just slow down and try to understand exactly 
what he's saying. And so there's really four things that, that Paul is tapping into that will be important for Timothy's following of Jesus, for a life of ministry and being a disciple, and I think us as well. So here's the four types of remembering. The first one is remembering prayer. Remembering prayer, verse 3. He says, I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. Friends, prayer is the posture of the follower of Jesus who says, I can't do this on my own. I am a totally dependent person, and we are crying out to the one who can do the work in and through us. Constantly, night and day. Friends, we we pray for a lot of things, don't we? And some of these things can be kind of silly. Can I tell you a silly example? I asked my wife for permission. She's like, oh, it's such a joy to be a pastor's wife. Uh, you get to use me as an illustration. Uh, so there was one night, 2011. This one's going to sting for Phillies fans, so just bear with me. We're going to get through this. We were living in St. Louis. St. Louis is a great baseball town no matter what you think, right? And we're sitting there on campus in St. Louis in seminary, and the Cardinals are in the World Series. It's game six. They are down three games to two against the Texas Rangers. It's the bottom of the 11th. It's all tied up. My wife is sitting next to me with the flu. She's shivering. We're up till midnight in St. Louis. You can't fall asleep in game six when all these things are happening. And David Freeze gets up to bat. And my wife prays. I love it when my wife prays. It's wonderful. She says, dear God, let David Freeze hit a walk-off home run. She prayed that. I'm just going to tell you. She prayed that. Guess what happened? He heard the ball, hit the bat, and we knew immediately that thing's going somewhere. Sarah, with the flu, we both jumped towards the television, and we're inches away going, go, go. We're like yelling at the ball, right? And then all of a sudden, Joe Buck is just this classic. He's like, he's like, and we will, and it hits the grass. See you tomorrow night. And it was just like, ah! There's no more commentary. People are screaming. The campus is erupting. It was just a magical moment. We're, we're jumping. She has the flu. We're hugging. I had the flu the next day. Um, I'm just kidding. I don't think I did. Um, can I just read you a, a prayer that is far less silly? I, that was frivolous, and, and um, I, I just don't take that too far. But, but can I read you a real prayer from Jesus himself as he was considering his disciples his followers. He goes to the Father in John chapter 17 with the high priestly prayer, as it's called, and he prays to his Father for everyone, ourselves included, who would follow him. He says, I am praying for them that you would keep them in your name, that they may be one, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves because, Lord, or because <laughs> friends, the Christian life is hard and we can lose joy. He's begging the Father for joy for us. He says, I don't ask that you would take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. He says, sanctify them. Remove from them the pollution of sin. Keep them in truth, and your word is truth. Friends, even today, and here's the picture that I have of Jesus even now, for those of us who are following him. He's saying, please, Father, let them persevere in faith. As we take steps of faith, I see him kind of close to the TV going, go, go, Lord, help him to go. Please, Lord, help Anthony and Sarah to continue to persevere 
in doing things like family devotions, when it just seems like an act of Congress or World War III when we begin to, to, to engage with those activities. He's saying, Lord, keep my brother and sister as they receive that terrible diagnosis. Lord, give my brother and sister your child joy even in the midst of their sexual brokenness. Lord, give them unity in moments of division. That is Jesus begging the Father that we would continue. That happens today. Right now, he's seated at the right hand of his Father, begging him for us. Friends, that's a picture of discipling as well. Who are we begging the Lord to persevere? Who is in our lives that we know that intimately, to be able to pray that specifically? Here's a second one. He remembers tears. There's a remembering of tears in verse 4. Don't speed past this. He says, as I remember your tears, I long to see you. This is profound to me. You know, we don't know if this is Acts 20, where he's leaving the Ephesian, Paul's leaving the Ephesian elders. They're, they're literally sobbing together. Timothy is probably receiving this letter in Ephesus. Maybe he's there, maybe he's not. But Paul is sitting here in prison, thinking back on this child of sorts, and he's just remembering the tears in his eyes. The empathy here is profound to me. Empathy builds trust. If we think God is just this curmudgeon in the sky who's barking orders at us and he's not paying attention to our pain and our sorrow, we will never trust him enough to follow. But we see pictures like Psalm 56 where David says, God, you have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? In fact, God identifies with our suffering so deeply that he sent his son God himself came into our suffering to suffer, to undo all of the hurt and all of the pain and all of the sickness and all of the death. He remembers our tears to the point where he actually did something about it. He calls them to remember faith. That's the third remembering in verse 5. He says, I am reminded of your sincere faith. So let's just talk about this for a second. Uh, You know, he's looking back on Timothy's life, and I'm saying, and he's saying, "I remember, I remember your sincere faith. It was true. You were truly believing and following after Jesus." And the reason I want to bring this up is because sometimes we look at this idea of faith, and we're like, "Well, do I have enough faith?" When we see sincere, we might be thinking in the terms of a quality of faith. We're like, you know, I, I grew up in a setting where people would say, "When I was sick, chronically." People would literally say to me, Anthony, if you just had enough faith, you'd be healed. That's a dangerous theology. That's not what we see when we read God's Word and it says, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, he's not talking about the quality of your faith. He's talking about the quality of the object of our faith. Here's a picture of that. A number of years ago, I went skiing near the Lake Placid area. There was this lake called Scroon Lake, right? And I'm from Virginia Beach. Lakes don't freeze in Virginia Beach, ever. A little bit of ice on the top that wouldn't hold an acorn. So when I went to Scroon Lake and the people at the hotel said, oh yeah, you can walk across that frozen lake to that island. I was like, uh-uh, I am not walking across the frozen lake because I'll sink and die, right? My friends were like, well, they said we could do it, so we're going to go do it. And they start walking out. And I'm like, I, no, I do not believe any of these people. They're all lying to me. I will not. Go out on the frozen lake. Now, I did. Peer pressure is a beast, right? So uh, 
I start walking out on this frozen lake. The whole time, it was the most, it was the most horrible experience of my life. I was in fear constantly, right? When I got off, I was like, praise the Lord, I'm never going to walk across a frozen lake as long as I live. However, let me just ask you this question. Did my faith in that frozen lake's ability to hold me make a difference as to whether or not it was actually able to hold me? No. I could have had all the faith in the world, and if I stepped out on it, it was thin ice, I'd have been a goner. In that case, I had faith the size of a mustard seed, and I stepped out on it, but guess what it did? It held me. And so in a way, Paul is saying, you know, I remember your sincere faith, and Timothy, remember the object of your faith as you face the unknown, as you face these challenges, that that he's bigger than any lack of faith or timidity you may have. Now, can I give you a little hidden gem? Right, here's here's an aside, but, but the second part of this verse where it says, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am sure dwells in you as well. To me, this has been a huge encouragement to my faith as I saw where really faith began in my family. It was with my grandmother. And I think it's just so important for us to understand how important it is to to continue to hold our faith before if we have children or family members, our young ones who are in our households. For the spouse who is married to someone who is an unbeliever and you're fighting this exhausting battle, that was Timothy's house. His mother had faith. His father did not. I pray that Timothy is an encouragement for you if you find yourself there to keep going. Grandparents, if your kids don't know the Lord, but, but you have grandkids who you're, you have guardianship of or you're, you're praying for, continue to pray. Because Jesus works through the household, literally, the, the, that family of faith. Families, continue to hold the gospel and God's word before your children. He works there. All right. Here's the last thing we need to remember is we need to remember gifts. We need to remember gifts. And there's just this reality where all of us, we, we can let things, even the gifts we've received from the Lord, kind of fade out a little bit. He says here in verse 6, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. So, so there is a gift of God. We don't know what this is, but it's a spiritual gift of sorts. But for whatever reason, it's kind of died down, right, in its burn rate. And, and Paul is saying, fan that thing into flame. And I'm thankful he doesn't actually name what this gift is. Because we can go, okay, for us, we need to keep in the front of our minds that the Lord has given us gifts. By the way, we can't take pride in gifts. We, we cannot muster those on our own. They're spirit-generated. But he's given to them to us, and he wants us to fan those things into flame. Use them in the church. Use them outside of the walls of the church. Some of the spiritual gifts, if you want to wrestle through what are the spiritual gifts, there's a couple of good lists, Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12. Just remember the 12s. But sit there and go, Lord, how can I exercise the gifts you've given to me faithfully? Gifts like mercy, generosity, service, administration. You don't need a job title in the church to do that. Evangelism. Some of us are just more bold than others to share the gospel. It doesn't mean the rest of us don't, but it means fan those things in the flame. Don't let them die out like logs that just kind of begin to ember out. He's like, poke those flames. And here's the last thing I want to talk about is is this ultimate gift that continues to rekindle. Do you see that in verse 7? He says, God gave us a spirit not of fear, not of timidity, 
but of power and of love and of self-control. He's saying fan it into flame because that's in you. God has put this nuclear generator in us to generate these spiritual gifts. I hate making left turns. Do you like making left turns in a car? Ever since I was 15 and getting my learner's permit, I hated making left turns. I left the parking lot yesterday. I had to make a left turn. My chest got tight. There were two cars coming. I was just like, I think I can make it. I have this weird panic moment, right? You know what I did? I just gunned it. You know what that was? It was a moment of faith. I had faith that the tires would grip and the engine would create enough force to move me ahead of whatever the oncoming cars are. If, if I were just running across the road and trying to get up to speed to the car coming, I, I would have been hit. In a way, Paul is saying to Timothy, you're in the car. You've got this power of the Spirit in you. Trust it. Take those steps of faith. You have power in you. We can be confident of His enabling as we exercise gifts by faith. Love. As we use God's gifts, we do so serving others, not in our own self-assertion or finding our own power. We're able to both demonstrate power and love. Isn't that amazing? And then discipline. This one's even more amazing, right? Where so much power today is, is undisciplined. We can actually lean into the Spirit to not only guide us outward in power, but do so in a way that is loving and is under self-control. And so, friends, just a brief glimpse this morning of how do we persevere in our discipleship. Right? We understand that we are under authority but constantly offered grace and by remembering these four items that He is constantly at work at, in, and through us. Let me pray, and then we're actually going to move to a time of ordination. So I would invite any of the uh, elders who sit on our session, if you could make your way up here at this time, along with the two brothers who we're going to uh, ordain and install as I pray. So let me pray for us as we move to this next part. Lord, as we come before you this afternoon now, I just pray that you will use this book in our lives, some of us, Lord, to, to become a disciple for the first time. To say, I've seen enough of you, Jesus, to, to desire to follow after you. Lord, I pray that your spirit would regenerate and ignite that heart for you. And Lord, as we follow you in discipleship, will you help us to not grow faint? Remind us of the grace and mercy offered to us in the gospel. And that, Lord, that you would remind us of the Holy Spirit that is also at work in and through us. Lord, be with us as we move to this time of ordination. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.